So this is lesson eight in the book of Galatians. We just finished chapter one last week. However, as we move into chapter two, we are in the middle of Paul still establishing his authority and the validity of the gospel that he preaches. This is one, actually one place, uh, one of those places where a chapter change really wasn't necessary because really there's no change in thought. We're still establishing authority here. Remember, Paul started this whole thing out by saying in chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from man nor by man, but by Yeshua the Messiah and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so he's been showing that this is the case. He's covered his calling and now he turns to the validity of the gospel message that he preaches. And he's going to do this by showing that it's the same gospel message that Yeshua gave the apostles. And that the apostles in Jerusalem are in complete agreement with the gospel he preaches to the nations. And so let's begin with chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read through verse 5. Fourteen years later, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation set before them, the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Messiah Yeshua and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Okay, so this passage is fraught with problems for a reader who does not put it back into its proper context. First, why would it say that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised? I mean, whether a Gentile became circumcised or not was their choice. It wasn't something that was compulsory. So why would Paul use the word compelled? Well, the answer lies in the fact that he is with Paul. And Paul is speaking to the leaders of the Jerusalem assembly. So these false brothers, as Paul sees them, are objecting to an uncircumcised Gentile being brought into the leadership circle. Much the same way, I'm sure that there would be objections if I were to bring a non-member to an elders meeting. What else would they be doing at a meeting such as this? Well, they'd be breaking bread. They would eat together, which would be a problem for the very traditionally observant as well. They couldn't, they wouldn't eat with a Gentile. The Torah doesn't forbid it, but Jewish tradition forbids it. So the point being that he was a non-Jew who was allowed close fellowship with the leaders of Jerusalem, even table fellowship, and yet he wasn't compelled to be circumcised or convert, in other words, to Judaism. We have another problem here, and it's that Paul says he goes up to Jerusalem in response to a revelation. But there's no mention of what the revelation is, the content of the revelation. And so we must assume that the revelation given him by Yeshua was that he needed to go to Jerusalem to seek the counsel of the apostles in the matter of the gospel that he preached. And we know that because he says he set before them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. And we have to keep in mind that Paul, with the gospel he preaches, is going 
to go against every established authority in Judaism. Pharisaic, Sadducean, whatever Judaism, they all required that non-Jews become fully Jewish, circumcised, and to be made part of the community. And so Paul is really swimming upstream here. It doesn't matter that it's not a Torah requirement because tradition says it is. And remember, tradition speaks as loud or louder than the Torah itself. And I'm going to show you that today. The teachers in Israel taught that God intended that all non-Jews who worship Him and wanted to be a part of Israel had to convert. And while it's not apples for apples, what Paul is doing would be like you going around from church to church, telling them they needed to keep the Sabbath and taking the time to show them in Scripture and also show them in Scripture that not one of the original church, uh, one of the original uh, apostles or anyone in the book of Acts kept Sunday as their day of rest. You're not going to get far because church tradition speaks louder than Scripture in that regard as well. So the Lord tells him, look, go to Jerusalem and lay this message before the apostles and get their approval. Now the word set before them, if we look at the Greek, gives the sense of setting it before them for their consideration. He's not going and saying, this is what I'm going to preach, take it or leave it. He's laying it before them for their consideration and their opinion on the matter. And he's going humbly before these men, not arrogantly, but in all humility, humility, setting before them what Yeshua had given him to preach and asking for their approval and I'm sure their backing. The other thing that points to his humility, he says, I did this in privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. He did it privately. He's not going up to create some big disturbance, but he's going up and doing it privately because of his respect for the authorities in Jerusalem. And he knows these are the leaders of the congregation of Yeshua. He knows without the approval of these men, he had and would continue to run his race in vain. Everywhere he goes, there will be those who can test what he preaches concerning circumcision. And we can also take from this statement that Paul might be having a moment of doubt himself even. Right? If he didn't get the approval he seeks, hey, that might be the end of the gospel he preaches. We might not have heard the gospel that he preaches. Thinking that he had run his race in vain, he says. Also, since he says, yet not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek, I think we can conclude that he did get the approval he seeks. And what he's asking them to consider is non-Jews do not need to be circumcised to be members of the covenant community in the diaspora. And the answer is in the sentence as well. They do agree because Titus was not compelled to be circumcised and he was admitted fellowship and yet not compelled to be circumcised. And we also know the answer because later in Acts chapter 15, James, Peter, and the council in Jerusalem uh, make the teaching, uh, make this the standard for the assemblies of Yeshua. 
So we can begin to see here in, by this statement just how uphill a battle Paul is waging. He really had no backing at this point. He knew Peter would be in agreement because he met with Peter. We talked about that last week. But without the approval of these pillars of the faith, he's going to be out there all by himself. He may know that God and Torah do not require non-Jews to be circumcised except in the instance of eating the Passover lamb. But even if he lays out his case in Torah before everybody, traditional teaching will prevail in the minds of most because tradition is that strong. It's so strong that it actually outweighs scriptures in many cases. Next, Paul says... This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Messiah Yeshua. When he speaks of being slaves, what is he talking about? Make us slaves. He's speaking of these traditions that we've been talking about or the oral Torah. Does the written Torah make a slave of you? Heaven forbid. According to the psalmist in Psalm 119, he says... I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you and may your laws sustain me. Not only that, not only is the Torah not slavery, but without the oral Torah, it's a delight. James thought the same thing. Listen to what James says. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, by doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. You see, it's not the Torah that makes a slave of men. It was the oral Torah that made the slaves of men. All the additions of the rabbis. And as Yeshua said, they had, tried, they had tied up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. And the heavy loads he spoke about were portions of this oral Torah, these oral traditions. So if these non-Jews consent to being circumcised, and by that they are saying, we're going to live life as a Jew, if they become circumcised, they're vowing to live as a Jew, and in the process, they're being, they will be obligated by means of that vow to keep the written as interpreted by the oral. And so what are they doing? They're taking that heavy load that Yeshua spoke of and putting it on their backs. So let's get an idea of how the two Torahs, the written and the oral, are in the minds of the rabbis at this time. Listen to what this tradition says. This is from the Talmud, Shabbat 31a. Our rabbis taught, a certain heathen once came before Shammai and asked him, how many Torah do you have? Two, he replied, the written and the oral. I believe in with with respect to the written, but not with respect to the oral. Make me a proselyte on the condition that you teach me the written only. He scolded and repulsed him in anger. Then he went before Hillel. He accepted him as a proselyte. On the first day he taught him Aleph, Bey, Gimel, Dalet. On the following day he reversed them to him. But yesterday you did not teach me thus, he protested. Must you then not rely upon me? then rely upon me with respect to the oral too. You see, there's no distinguishing in the minds of these rabbis. Shammai repulsed him because teaching the written without the oral was not possible for Shammai. And you can see this today. When a devout Jew says Torah in his mind, he's not just speaking of the five books of Moses. He's speaking of the Mishnah and the Talmud too. 
He can be reading the Talmud. You can walk in on him. He's reading the Talmud with no Torah in sight. And if you ask him what he's doing, he's going to say, I'm studying Torah. You, if you're going to understand Galatians, have to get this one point. And let me give you another example. Remember, last week we looked at Genesis 26 and the promise of God to Abraham. Let's look at it again. Genesis 26, verse 4 and 5. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me, kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. Now remember the word there for laws is Torah, but it's in the plural. And I mentioned that the rabbis taught that the word laws referred to the Torah that was received at Mount Sinai. But really, it's worse than that. Let me read this tradition for you. Listen to the commentary from Art Scroll by Rashi. And my Torahs, the plural number indicates both the written and the oral, which include the, those rules and interpretations transmitted to Moses at Sinai. You see, Rashi, a rabbi from the Middle Ages, but still shows rabbinic thought, says that the oral and the Torah, the oral and the written, carried equal weight. They were both given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Now, what I want to show you one more thing about how much weight this oral Torah has. A few weeks ago, we taught on this. Exodus chapter 34, verse 26. Bring the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a goat in its mother's milk. So this means is, what this means to the Jewish people is you can't eat meat or chicken with dairy. That's how they interpret this. Do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Turns into you can't eat chicken or meat with dairy. And to this day, there are meat and dairy restaurants, meat or dairy restaurants, restaurants that are divided into a meat side and a dairy side. Now, if we look at the tradition above, it says Abraham obeyed the written and the oral, right? Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 18 and see if he did. Genesis chapter 18 says, And he, Abraham, brought some curds and milk and a calf that had been prepared and set these before them, the angels. And while they ate, he stood near there under a tree. In this passage, Abraham clearly does not bother separating meat and dairy, but he serves these messengers from God So what are you going to do with that? Well, easy. We'll reinterpret the Bible to agree with our tradition. And so that's what they did. Here's a tradition from art school again. Rossi's Rossi's solution to the difficulty of why Abraham served meat and milk in seeming contravention to the cash root laws, Rossi explained, would thus the following order of the verse. Abraham first served dairy items for the naturally required less separation and were ready first. Only afterwards, after they slaked their thirst and hunger, did he bring the full meal which consisted of the calves' meat. Also, this is easy. We'll just put a few hours between the, meat, the milk and curds and the meat. And then we're good to go. See? Now, again, this is Rashi. And he's from the Middle Ages. But again, it shows rabbinic thought on the matter. We'll just interpret scripture to fit our traditions. And let me say something about Rashi. If you're ever going to, because I like to let people know about Rashi. If you're going to study Jewish tradition, you need to be aware of Rashi. 
He was a product of the times in which he lived. And during his life, the Jewish people were suffering under the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church would go in and stop their service. You have to believe in Jesus. Right? And they would go in there with passages like Isaiah 53, Isaiah 7. Right? He was a product of his time. And his interpretations on messianic passages is quite tainted by that persecution. He's one of uh, the rabbis that the anti-missionaries of today love. One of, his, one of their main sources. I did a series uh, many, many years ago, probably 12 years ago. Um, it was called Beware the Bible Changers. And Rashi played a big part, a key role in it. But, but that's a rabbit trail. I just wanted to, because I'm quoting him, I want to say that. But what I want you to see is that this is the mentality that Paul is up against. The oral tradition says that non-Jews must convert and be circumcised in a Jewish mindset of the day. Tradition is as powerful and as authoritative as the word of God. And yes, it even outweighs the written word because we'll just put two hours in here Three hours in here so that we can justify chicken or dairy and chicken together. The other thing that we should see is how strongly he feels about these men. He calls them false brothers. That's a strong term to use against someone who, who has a different opinion than you do. But he uses it because their opinion is so contrary to the gospel he preaches. The message Yeshua suffered and died for. Now, I should say this because I've spoken much about Paul's disagreement with tradition and circumcision. But we should not draw the conclusion that all the oral Torah is bad. If I were making the defense of the oral Torah, I could show where Yeshua's opinions, some of his opinions, were in complete agreement with the oral Torah. In fact, in some instances, his quotes are almost quoted word for word in the oral Torah. Right? Where Paul and Yeshua disagree is when tradition is contrary to the good news or the word of God. When it replaces relationship with God. Even this issue of not circumcising, I want you to know something else. This issue of not circumcising non-Jews was not something new. You can find that in Jewish tradition as well. Let's look. This is from the Talmud again. Our rabbis taught if a proselyte was circumcised but not had performed the ritual immersion, Rabbi Eliezer said, Behold, he is a proper proselyte. If he performed the prescribed immersion but had been circumcised, our Joshua said, Behold, he is a proper proselyte. The sages, however, said, Whether he had performed ritual immersion but had not been circumcised or whether he had been circumcised but not performed ritual immersion, he is not a proper proselyte unless he has been circumcised and performed the ritual immersion. The point being is, I'm making a strong case against the oral Torah, but the point being is that you can find much that is good in there, and you can find a lot that's bad in there. I once had a a teacher came to me and he said, he was just beginning his study of Mishnah and Talmud, and he says, you know something, Stan? You can prove anything you want. from the Talmud. And he was correct. So anyway, I personally don't recommend that people get into the study of Mishnah and Talmud unless they have a firm handle on Scripture. 
and the good news and a solid relationship with Yeshua. And the reason is many who study Talmud without those things end up in a synagogue rejecting Yeshua as Messiah, which is truly a fatal mistake for anyone who does that. But here, there is, some good new, there is some good in the Sea of Talmud in the Mishnah. And if you're going to wear fringes on the corners of your garments, then that's a great place to find how to do that. Why not do it according to Jewish tradition? If you're going to say a blessing before you eat, something which I might add is not required in the Torah, you're not required by Torah, by God, to say a blessing before you eat. But if you do, then the traditional blessing is good. Yeshua used it. It's correct in that it blesses God for giving the food rather than the Christian tradition that blesses the food. Why do you want to bless the food? Why not bless the one who gave you the food? (laughs) Right? Okay, well anyway, all these rabbit trails today. But if we look back to the Gospels and the letters of the Apostles, I found the dividing line between what was considered acceptable and what was considered damaging was whether or not it kept the good news from going forward. Because of that, I've even set the same course in my life at Sar Shalom. As we pointed out last week, the life of Abraham was huge in forming Paul's newfound theology. And let's look at Abraham. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Nick did a commentary on Genesis chapter 12, and he pointed out something in his commentary And you see this if you read a Hebrew Bible, but you don't see it if you read a Christian Bible. So I'm going to go through it again. It comes from Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4. It says, So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And he took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and all the possessions they had accumulated, and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. That's how it would read in a Christian Bible. And it sounds as if Abraham had acquired slaves and took them with him. It says all the people he had acquired. It sounds like he had acquired a bunch of slaves, and he took them with him. But if you look at the Hebrew text... And thought in Paul's day, you find something quite different. So we're going to do both. We're going to look at the Targum, which is from Paul's day, on Genesis chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. It says, And Abraham went out, and the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he went out from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother, and all their wealth which they had acquired, and all the souls they had converted. And I bring this up because the life of Abraham, which Paul used over and over as an example of our place in the gospel and what our lives should be, would have been seen by Paul and the other apostles as one that was filled with teaching others about God, first and foremost. One of converting souls, not to rabbinics because there was none, but one of showing people the love of God and converting them to a life filled with the worship and with relationship with God. The verse shows that Abraham was an evangelist for God. And this would not have been, this would have just been the beginning because if we move forward to chapter 14, it says this, 
When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. By the time we get to chapter 14, the number of men who were were actually the defenders of the camp of Abraham were 318. Abraham and his witness of God had come grown to 318 fighting men, not counting the old, the women, the children. Now that's quite a feat. You see, if we look at the life of Abraham, we find a man who God called friend. He was hospitable. He was quick to tell people about God. He had come to, the God he had come to know, Abraham was not only an example to Paul and to us all, but he was an example that was followed by the men of his day. How many people do you know that have brought hundreds and thousands of people to the love of God? And not only that, but how many people do you know that would follow a man like this that had shown them the love of God out to war to rescue his nephew? Right? You see, what was important to Abraham is that all men come to know and worship the Creator. And Paul saw that. And because he was Paul's role model and Paul's forefather, what was important to Paul was the same thing. That all men come to know and worship the Creator. Let me read a passage for you that when I came to the revelation of what Paul was saying in this passage, because I'd read it times before, you know, you read the Bible a lot of times and then all of a sudden the verse goes, boom, right? It's like somebody turned on the light bulb right over the verse and now you're actually reading it. Well, this verse really changed my life in the course of this congregation. And first, let's set the stage for this verse because you have... It's been taken out of context and twisted so many times that if you don't understand that Paul is speaking about preaching the gospel, you might think that he had sewn his foreskin back on and lived as a Gentile. But if you take it in its proper context, which I'm going to do, we'll start with verse 18. Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. See, the topic here, and as we continue, is preaching the gospel. And in preaching the gospel, he says this. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though myself, I am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Messiah's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you see what I'm getting at here? He's not speaking of being a Jew one day, wearing fringe and eating clean foods, and then the next day taking off the fringe and eating pork dinner. Like somebody without the law. No, he's speaking of preaching the gospel message. And he says, when I preached to the Jew, his message was to the Jew. Why? To win Jews. 
And when he preached to the Gentile, those without the law, his message was to the Gentile to win the Gentiles who were without the law. What I want you to see is that to Paul, what was important, what was paramount in his life was introducing people to God. That's what was important to Abraham as well. Well, when I read this and the Lord impressed the truth of this, Ami had changed my life and it changed his ministry. And it was, it was around the year 2000 when this really happened. I can tell because I'm going to look back at my sermon and I'll show you why. But I really grasped this. And if you look at my sermons and my teachings before that, instead of Lord, I used Hashem or Adonai. Instead of John, it was Yochanan. Peter was Kepha. And sermons were a mixture of English and translation of Hebrew names and places, transliterations. But when I saw this passage, I asked myself, is it more important that I say Hashem and have a visitor scratching their heads through the rest of the message on what I meant? Or was it better to say Lord and have them understand the truth of the message I was preaching that day? It was at the same time, it was about the same time, I Jewish New Testament exclusively in my sermons. I thought it was the very best translation available. But after the truth of what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians, I realized that for my sermons, it was probably the very worst. Well, then here's why. Let me read you a little portion from the Jewish New Testament, Luke chapter 5, verse 33. Then they said to him, Yochanan's Talmudim are always fasting and davening. Likewise, the Talmudim of the Perushim, but yours go on eating and drinking. You see what I'm saying? While the vendor is wondering what a Yochanan, a Talmudim, and a Perushim are, and what davening is, they missed point of the lesson and did not return because they got nothing from the service, right? So the opportunity, you see, the opportunity, and I take a lot of stack from this because a lot of people see I should still do that, but the opportunity to witness the truth of the word of God was lost. Not to mention, you know, mixing transliteration with translation is one of the more confusing things you can do to the Bible. So I said to myself, Stan, what's more important, the truth of what you're teaching or Yochanan instead of John? Of course, the answer was easy. So around 2002, things like Hashem, and transliterations, and the Jewish New Testament disappeared from my messages. And guess what? We grew faster than we'd ever grown before, almost every area of the ministry. And not that numbers are necessarily a measure of success of the ministry, but now we were making, really, we were making disciples of Yeshua. Visitors were hearing the truth of the gospel instead of Hebrew names, transliterated. Another way, anyway, that's another rabbit trail. Because the point of the lesson today was to show you once again just what Paul was up against here. A Jewish mentality that says tradition was so truthful and so on the money that we're going to reinterpret the Bible in the light of that tradition. Right? That's why Yeshua said of the rabbis of the day, to some of the rabbis of the day, he said... 
You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Here's the moral. If you want the truth, spend more time in your prayer closet listening to Yeshua and asking Him for the right answers and less time in commentaries. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah.